Assalamu alaikum, welcome to the Afghan Eye Podcast. I am your host Sangar Paikar and in this episode of the Afghan Eye Podcast, we have a guest, uh, Jeff Rigsby, who is a former US military contractor and an aid worker who is currently residing in Afghanistan. Jeff Rigsby spent five years during the Republic working uh, and living in Afghanistan and he is now back in Afghanistan working on a proposal to address energy poverty in the Afghan capital. Jeff, welcome to our podcast. It's an honor to have you as our guest. Thank you for having me. So, Jeff, how are you doing? How, how is life in Afghanistan right now? Uh, life in Afghanistan is, is um, I would say it's getting a little bit better. Um, you've probably heard, even though you weren't here and I wasn't here either, that uh, the winter was especially hard. Uh, in Kabul, it was difficult because there was no electricity for part of the time. Um, but now the trees are in bloom. Uh, the air is getting cleaner because people aren't burning as many things as they used to to keep warm. Um, so the situation is getting a little bit more bearable. We could put it that way. Okay, so um, you are currently in Afghanistan as a private citizen. Uh, you have no official affiliation or anything uh, of that nature. Am I correct? That's correct. Okay. So, Nobody believes it, but it's true. All right. So uh, when I was in Kabul, we met and we uh, uh, had a little chat. And back then you told me that you travel around the country, uh, sometimes also using public transportation. Uh, so how is it for you as a U.S. citizen uh, currently living in Afghanistan, uh, traveling around the country? Can you tell that, please? The situation for traveling outside of Kabul is actually a little bit more uh, uh, regularized than it was last year. Um, so the rules are clearer, but they're also a little bit stricter. And maybe that makes it uh, harder than it used to be for, for tourists to get outside of the capital. Um, if you want to go anywhere outside of Kabul province, you need a, a single permit from Afghan Tour, uh, which is part of the Ministry of Information and Culture, uh, for each province that you visit. Um, the permits are not very expensive. They're a thousand Afghani, which is about 11 US dollars, uh, but they can be a little bit time consuming to obtain. And uh, they also have to be registered for specific dates, uh, which means that if you don't have a very careful uh, travel plan worked out, uh, it can be difficult to use them. Uh, so they, they have, uh, in one way, you could say they've improved the situation because now tourists, when they leave the capital, have documents that can show that they have a legitimate reason for being somewhere. Um, but they've also, I, I think, make it, made it a little bit more uh, complicated uh, to get out of the capital. So I have not done very much travel outside of Kabul since I got back here uh, a few weeks ago. I was away for the winter, as I mentioned. But when you were here uh, during the summer, uh, back then, uh, it was easier, uh, less uh, bureaucratic to uh, move around the country. It, it was less bureaucratic, but at the same time, I think a little bit of bureaucracy can help because if you are anywhere outside of the capital where foreigners are quite unfamiliar, uh, it's good to have some documentation other than your visa. Now, what the people at Afghan Tour were saying last year was that all you need to travel anywhere in the country except Panjshir, which needs a special permit from the Interior Ministry, or at least it used to. Uh, but to any, for any other province of Afghanistan, you just need your, your uh, valid visa. And uh, according to uh, the Ministry of Information at that time, um, you didn't need anything else. But that was actually a little bit of a problem because uh, most local Talibs are not familiar with the idea that tourists, especially American tourists, would just be sort of wandering around the country. Um, and it is good to have some additional documentation. So um, even though there were no legal restrictions on uh, going outside the capital, 
uh, I did run into problems with either either GDI or Interior Ministry people who uh, didn't really understand why I was there, and sometimes took a few hours for them to call their superiors in Kabul and figure out that there was actually nothing wrong. We're just doing a little bit of technical checking here. So what's interesting is that there is a situation where the Taliban, uh, they are not exactly sure on how to deal with the fact that Western tourists are traveling around the country. And so if you don't have the right paperwork, if you uh, travel to some province, I don't know, Ghor or Helmand or whatever, they might get suspicious and think like, what the hell is this guy doing here? But yeah, that's the problem, basically. In your experience, when you uh, uh, end up in a situation like that, that, you know, local police, uh, etc., they are surprised to see you. How is the interaction with you? How do they interact with you? Uh, I found that the Taliban that I dealt with, even when they ended up detaining me for a few hours, uh, were generally very polite. Um, The only negative interactions that I recall having had are with people who work for the interior ministry, uh, because that seems to be a, a different um, a different style of administration, put it that way. Um, but no, in general, I, I think they're they're just trying to be cautious and follow the rules. Um, okay. It doesn't necessarily mean that they're friendly to foreign tourists, but they're, they're not hostile to them either. They just need to get confirmation that tourism is a legitimate thing for people to be doing here. And there's also an element, I think, of wanting people to be supervised. Another new rule that Afghan tours brought in is that you have to have a translator or a guide uh, to travel with you outside of Kabul, uh, and which I think for most people is not such a bad idea anyway. Um, I wouldn't necessarily say that it's a good idea to go on your own to to many parts of the country, uh, unless you have very good Persian or Pashto, which I don't really. Um, but uh, part of it, of course, is that they, they hope that uh, uh, by requiring people to hire guides, they'll make the interactions a little bit easier and also generate some income for, for the translators themselves. Okay, so uh, do you think that uh, for the period of time that you're going to stay in Afghanistan, maybe permanently, we don't know, uh, but for as long as you're in Afghanistan, do you think it's convenient to always apply for a visa tourist permission, or maybe they should give you some kind of other document that you are basically and residing in Afghanistan, you are a U.S. citizen, but... You surely can. You shouldn't always be the tourist. Do you see what I'm saying? Well, I do see what you're saying. There are not too many people who are in that situation. Uh, I have a very old company here that I registered more than a decade ago, and I've just finished clearing all the paperwork. It was never actually active. I I didn't do any business with it. Uh, But because it exists, uh, I was able to to get it reactivated and uh, uh, clear the penalties that might have built up from from, uh, not filing annual reports for a decade or so. one thing I have to say is that the emir, uh, Habatullah, has decided that fines and penalties or monetary penalties are, are haram. So uh, even though you, you may find that uh, if the company's been active, been inactive for a long time uh, and you've got penalties for not having filed reports, um, those have all been waived, which at first I didn't know. Somebody tried to convince me that I had to pay a huge amount of money to get the company cleared. Um, but according to the emir, that's not necessary. So I have to say um, that is one aspect of his policies that I do appreciate, although I, I really wish that they, they were more uh, aggressive about finding people in some other contexts, like driving. <laughs> okay, so... Yeah. I, I don't I don't think there are many people, there, there are not many people who are going to want to live here for the long term or indefinitely. I, I think uh, um, 
the situation with tourists needs a little bit of work, but I think they are they're trying to get it regularized. So okay, but uh, I still don't get the uh, uh, picture. Like, would you want to have like like for example, I'm an Afghan citizen. I live in the Netherlands, and I don't need any tourist visas. I'm just a legal uh, citizen here, even though I have dual nationality. Like, would that be an option for you because you're living and working and doing stuff in Afghanistan, would that be a solution? And if yes, uh, how would you see that? Uh, I, I'm not particularly optimistic that the Taliban are going to be giving dual nationality to anyone, at least not to non-Muslims. Um, what, what may happen, at least in my case, and I, I can't really generalize from that because uh, nobody else is doing what I'm doing, uh, but if the, if the grant proposal that I'm working on now uh, goes forward, uh, I should be able to get a work visa here on that basis. And I think that with a work visa, normally you can travel to every province. They're being especially restrictive about tourists because I think they may have had some negative experiences with some of the video people who came last summer. Uh, but I think if you do have a valid work visa, not that many people do that nowadays, but certainly during the Republic, there are a lot of people who did work here. Um, I don't think there would be any geographical restrictions for that. So that would make it easier. And I'm I'm holding off on additional travel until that comes through, if it does. Okay, so um, now that you have spent some time in Afghanistan during the Taliban era, uh, and you also spent about five years during the Republic, uh, have you had the opportunity to learn some Dari or Pashto? Uh, I speak some Dari, but it's very badly after having not used it for so long. I think one of the things I need to do uh, if I get my living situation a little bit more regularized is to get a tutor again. So... And uh, I've also considered studying Pashto, but I did try that once before, and it wasn't uh, it wasn't very productive. So even with the new government that maybe uh, appreciates Pashto a little bit more than Persian, uh, I think I may stick to the language that I'm invested in. Yeah, yeah. So okay, Persian's easy. Yeah, I think you know the reason why Pashto may be more difficult is because Pashto's grammar is more complicated. Uh, like uh, you've got you've got cases, you've got grammatical gender. You've also got those retroflect consonants, which I thought I was hallucinating when I first started listening to people speak Pashto and started yeah. listening to, to tapes of Pashto. Retroflex consonants are tricky. Um, yeah, there are, there are a few odd things about Pashto that make it challenging. But You know, we have a joke. It's still not as bad as Greek. Yes, yeah, so we have we have Afghans. Do they say that uh, you know in the beginning when uh, international calls became more accessible with those cards that you had to pay, and then you can make international calls. So Afghans who live in the West, uh, they would say that, uh, yes, you can go buy one of those cards and then make calls to Afghanistan or other parts of the world to talk to your relatives. And then people would make fun of uh, the, you know, the, 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 how, uh, of the fact that Pashto is so difficult and so difficult to pronounce and everything. They would say, if you buy a card for like 10 euros and you speak Pashto, it it's it. You spend the money twice as fast as if you would have spoken Dari. <laughs> so uh, it, it is a difficult language. If you're just learning it, it's probably true. Yes, and especially uh, with Pashto, is that uh, uh, like for example, I speak Pashto, Dari, English, Dutch, and a few other languages. But when I have a long conversation in Pashto, my jaws and my tongue, everything, the muscles get tired because it's it's a language that requires. A lot it's of the efforts. retroflex consonants. Yes, it is. <laughs> yeah, so, so, okay. So, Jeff, um, um, 
you uh, pointed out a very important matter. You said that there is energy poverty in Afghanistan. Can you briefly explain what that means, energy poverty? I, I think when people talk about energy poverty, uh, especially in the context of Afghanistan, they mean a couple of things. Uh, one, and this is kind of obvious, and it was especially obvious last winter, um, is that there's a serious problem here with electricity. Um, most of the rest of the world is just beginning a transition to fully electrify uh, its entire economy. Um, sectors of the economy that didn't depend on electricity, like like uh, automobiles or motor vehicles, are being electrified. Um, Afghanistan is very far behind that. There's not even enough electricity to do the things that people normally use electricity for. Um, and as I've always said, you, you can't expect any kind of industrial development in a country that doesn't have reliable power. Um, so I've always told people if they're interested in investing here, they need to think about investing in the power sector before they think about anything else. Because to be honest, I mean, th this is something that I've looked at because I know there are people, especially in the Afghan diaspora, who would like to put money into this country if they could. Uh, it, it's not really a very attractive place to invest. And the, the absence of reliable electricity is probably the single most important reason why it's not a good place to invest. Uh, so that's something that has to be addressed before anything else can be addressed. Um, but when people talk about energy poverty in a humanitarian context, usually they mean something a little bit different. Uh, what they mean is that people are dependent on low-tech forms of heating and cooking uh, or low-tech fuels for heating and cooking. Um so, again, if you were here in the winter, which uh, neither of us was, luckily, uh, you know, the air quality in Kabul gets very bad uh, when people are trying to keep warm, either by burning coal or by burning sawdust or in some cases burning tires and garbage and other things. Um, so because this happens to be one of the only uh, least developed countries in the world that, that gets cold in the winter, uh, there are energy challenges here that you wouldn't see, for example, in a sub-Saharan African country. Uh, there's a lot that could be done, I think. Uh, to improve the quality of life in Kabul just by giving people access to better energy technologies for heating and cooking. Uh, that might mean, for example, giving people help in insulating their houses. Uh, or it might mean giving people different options for uh, for heating fuel. Uh, if people heat their houses with propane or gas instead of coal, it's going to reduce the amount of pollution that goes into the air. Um, so these are things that have been looked at a lot in the context of other developing countries, but they haven't really been looked at very much in Afghanistan. Uh, there was a French NGO that was working on these issues uh, during the Republic. I haven't been able to figure out what happened to them. Uh, I think like a lot of the NGO projects here, they were kind of cut off in the middle when the Taliban showed up in 2021. Uh, but there is, I think, some definite interest from donors in addressing this problem because it looks as if it might be a way to direct additional aid to Afghanistan, to the Afghan people, uh, without uh, funding the IEA or supporting the Taliban directly. Uh, I think there's an understanding now that you can't just keep giving people free food and free fuel. The humanitarian approach to treat Afghanistan as a kind of permanent disaster that that constantly needs you know infusions of emergency aid um, is not something that's going to work in the long run. Uh, and I think donors are are looking for ways to to use their money in a more long term way, but at the same time not to support the current regime. So it seems to me, and seems to some of the people that I'm working with, that this might be an area where where we could dis discover some some opportunities for that. But we'll have to wait and see what happens. That's uh, very insightful what you just said, because I think uh, for a lot of people it's very difficult to understand um, what it is like for people who are in Afghanistan, basically to 
get on with their lives. Uh, heating is a huge problem uh, during the winter. But um, I wanted to ask you about uh, what you said, like uh, um, investing in uh, uh, energy without uh, basically supporting the Taliban. Uh Like, how would that even be possible? Do you have any ideas of how, what they have in mind? Well, it, it depends on what kind of what it depends on what uh, subsector of energy you're talking about. Uh, one of the things that I noticed last year, I think I might have tweeted about it, is, is that there's a, a funny kind of policy that the United States government seems to have when it comes to aid reaching Afghanistan. Uh, the World Bank is being allowed to do certain kinds of small-scale projects, um, which had been planned during the Republic. Uh, and those could include, for example, things like uh, building small hydro projects to to provide electricity to a village. Uh, but the Asian Development Bank, which funds much larger projects, uh, working with Breshna Sherkat to provide uh, transmission capacity, uh, has not restarted its its work here. So it seems, based on a couple of comments that Tom West made last year, Uh, in uh, a discussion with some Afghan diaspora in the U.S. It seems that the U.S. has a policy of only allowing relatively small-scale projects to be executed here. Uh, anything that involves large infrastructure, um, maybe it's perceived as too high profile, maybe it's perceived as something that's going to embarrass the Biden administration or could potentially be used to embarrass the Biden administration. So there's a reluctance to invest um, aid money, whether it's the ADB or, or uh, other multilateral Uh, donors, uh, there's a reluctance to put money into the electricity sector. Uh, but if you talk about very small scale projects, like helping people in Kabul make their houses more efficient or getting their houses insulated, uh, that's the kind of thing that doesn't involve uh, the government or doesn't involve uh, government agencies like uh, Breshna Shekhat. And I, I think donors would be much more willing to su support that kind of assistance if they had the right uh, knowledge base, if they understood what needed to be done and how it could be done effectively. So I, I hope that what we're working on could could uh, unlock some some support in that area. It's a little bit less controversial than large scale projects. Okay, let's hope that uh, some development comes eventually because you know life in Kabul is very tough. I uh, I have relatives who just live in the uh, you know just around the city on the not inside the city but just around the city and those are parts of the city where they don't have uh, electricity and some people have uh, their own solar panels and others are just using uh, you know the stuff that you mentioned to burn uh, all kinds of different stuff to create uh, heat heating But this is a long-term problem that uh, needs to be addressing. Uh, needs to be addressed. I wanted to ask you about uh, a few other things. Like, for example, aside from the fact that you are busy currently doing uh, the things that you do in Afghanistan, you are also a keen observer of uh, current affairs. Uh, like, uh, we know each other from Twitter. So what I wanted to know is that uh, I recently saw that you wrote a very long response to a episode of uh, 60 Minutes. There was a item on 60 Minutes about a girl's school. And uh, let me get that up. Uh, let's see. Yes, here we go. So uh, you wrote a thread with uh, that there are 60, uh, 60 tweets in this yes. thread. 
Okay. Uh, we can't just go and read the whole thread because... No, I think that would take a little too much time. Yes, but... And uh, the, the thread is not finished yet. There's, there are more tweets to come on the subject. Okay. But uh, that's, the, that's the preliminary thread, thread, let's say. All right. Just briefly explain to me, uh, what is SOLA? Okay, SOLA is the School of Leadership Afghanistan, uh, which uh, was, until August of 2021, uh, the only girls' boarding school uh, anywhere in Afghanistan. Uh, they used to be located, I believe, in Khaled Fatullah Street 5. I, I went to their old location. There's no sign of it anymore, but they had a rented house there. Um, and uh, what they've done in a lot of ways is very impressive. They were taking girls from all over the country. Um, this was in the Republic, mind you. Uh, they uh, made a point of trying to integrate girls from different ethnic groups and uh, break down some of the barriers that exist between those groups here. Um, and they got a lot of international attention because they were doing something that nobody else was doing. Uh, and then uh, in August of 2021, when the Taliban uh, arrived very suddenly in Kabul, much more suddenly than most people had expected, uh, Sola got attention for a different reason, which was that the entire school uh, almost all of the students, uh, along with faculty and uh, I think most of the students' families as well, uh, were evacuated to Qatar uh, and eventually uh, were allowed to resettle in Rwanda. Um, so since that time, the school has been operating um, what uh, the director calls a semester abroad, although it's been more than one semester at this point. Uh, they've uh, opened a new temporary location in Kigali, the capital of Rwanda, uh, which is a very nice country, by the way. I've, I've visited uh, Kigali several years ago, uh, and uh, it's in many ways a more pleasant place to live than Afghanistan. So the girls who are there, uh, I'm sure, are doing very well. Um, I had started to pay attention to this. Well, let, let, let me back up a little bit. When when the, the, the republic collapsed and the Taliban took over, uh, I saw the uh, story, I think, on CNN and a few other uh, uh, news outlets about how everybody had evacuated to Rwanda. Uh, and actually, uh, there was a photograph of the girls facing one of the lakes in Kigali, uh, where they'd been photographed from behind, uh, that uh, appeared on CNN, which I used as my Facebook uh, profile photo for a long time. Not my profile photo, what do you call it, the background photo. Um, so I was very impressed with what they did, and I was impressed that they were able to get out. I think most people were relieved and, and uh, had been pretty worried about what might have happened otherwise. Um, but uh, beginning about six months later, I started to wonder uh, if maybe there was more to the school than meets the eye. Um, the reason for that is that um, if you take a look at the school's website, uh, which uh, includes a blog, by the co-founder of the school, uh, an Afghan woman named Shabana Basij Rasik. Um, I hope I'm pronouncing her name right. Uh, Leslie Stahl of 60 Minutes pronounced it differently, but I think that Leslie Stahl was wrong. So I hope that I'm pronouncing it right. Um, so Shabana Basij, Basij Rasik has a blog that's included on the school's website. And in February of 2022, so about six months after the Taliban takeover, she made an announcement that I thought was extremely odd. Uh, she said that the school would continue to recruit new students. They weren't just going to keep instructing the ones who had been evacuated. Uh, but she said that they would recruit only from the diaspora or from among Afghan refugees outside of Afghanistan. Um, and she explained that although she wanted very much to continue recruiting girls inside Afghanistan, it was obviously impossible to do that. And I thought that was a little bit odd. This was before I actually came back to Afghanistan in the summer of last year. But it seemed strange that she would say that because I knew that um, 
although obviously there had been a lot of disruption and for the first few months it wasn't possible to fly out of Kabul, uh, there were certainly a lot of people who left uh, via the Torkham or Spinbaldak uh, border crossings to Pakistan or across to Iran for that matter. Uh, it hasn't actually been very difficult for people with the proper documentation to leave Afghanistan unless uh, the Taliban has some specific reason for wanting to make them stay, say if they're suspected of, of having worked for the previous regime. Um, so it, it puzzled me a little bit that she said it was impossible for girls from Afghanistan to apply or to uh, to enroll and then travel overseas to to Rwanda, because it didn't seem to me that there was really any problem except money. Um, and I wondered, how much money does the school have? Do they just not have enough cash to afford the the extra expense that it might involve to uh, to bring girls from, from Afghanistan and fly them out? Um, the school's always been free, by the way. Uh, when it operated in Kabul during the Republic, uh, the girls didn't pay any tuition. It was always supported by donors. And one of the things that occurred to me was that in 2021, just because they'd received so much publicity about their evacuation, which is a very dramatic story, uh, they might have had even more donations than they'd had in previous years. So I had this, this sort of in the back of my mind, uh, but didn't really look into it until after I came back to Afghanistan in the summer of last year. Um, but then when I did start to look at it, um, I found a few things that were kind of strange. Um, in September, I think early September, uh, I went online and I got copies of the school's uh, tax records because it's incorporated in the United States as what's called a 501c3, which is basically a nonprofit uh, which gives donors the right to deduct donations from their taxes. So it, it provides a kind of government support. If, if you are a U.S. citizen and you donate to one of these organizations, uh, some of it comes back to you in lower taxes. So it's a way of supporting these types of groups. Uh, but it also means that they have to report some of their finances to the IRS, the American tax authorities. Uh, and uh, most of that information is public knowledge. Um, one of the few things that is not public is the identity of the school's largest donors. Um, I'm trying to get that now, even though it's not normally public information. I don't know if I'm going to be able to do that yet, uh, but I should know in a few days. Um, but almost everything else about the school's basic finances is publicly available. Um, in September of 2022, when I started looking at this, uh, the only documentation that I could find was up until the end of 2020, uh, because it takes several months for the, the annual reports to be processed and, and posted online. Um, and I found that at the end of 2020, the school had more than $10 million in assets. So they received quite a lot of donations. Um, I didn't really know whether $10 million was a lot or a little, because one of the things I couldn't figure out, and it was not something that the school's website will tell you, is how many girls were actually studying at the school. If you don't know the size of the, the student body, it's a little bit hard to tell how much money it would need to operate. Um, and it was a little strange to see that that wasn't something that the, the school made clear uh, in its public information. Um, so I wrote to the school's treasurer, uh, an American named Jim Bullion, um, and I asked him if it would be possible to get the uh, uh, tax records for calendar year 2021. Um, and I had a very strange um, set of uh, email exchanges with him in early September, where Bullion was clearly not willing to give me the information, even though it was publicly available, or it was meant to be publicly available. And it, it, was, it was striking to see an organization that had received so much publicity, uh, unwilling to disclose some really basic financial information about itself. Um, so there's a little bit of a struggle uh, on, on that point, which people can see if they take a look at the tweets. Um, I posted those emails. 
Uh, but in the end, I did get copies of the the, uh, the filings for 2021. And it turned out that as of the end of 2021, uh, they didn't have $10 million. They had more than $18 million because they'd taken in another 8 or $9 million during the year that they were evacuated, partly, I think, because of all the publicity. Uh, and they hadn't spent very much. The school seems to cost less than $2 million a year to run. Um, so it was starting to seem as if the school had accumulated a huge endowment, but didn't really intend to do very much with it. Um, they weren't going to make any additional effort or take any additional uh, expense to recruit girls from Afghanistan, who were the only girls in the world who are actually not allowed to go to secondary school. Um, instead, they decided they were only going to recruit girls from the diaspora, um, who in most cases, even if they're living in a refugee camp, there's going to be some kind of education made available to them. Um, and it was hard to understand why they would do that. Uh, so when I began to dig a little more, I, I found some some peculiar things about Jim Bullion, um, the gentleman who was previously treasurer of the organization and then moved up to become chairman. Um, he, for a couple of years during the Republic, uh, ran an organization under the U.S. Defense Department that was called the Task Force for Business and Stability Operations. Um some people may be familiar with this because TFBSO was involved with with some some pretty dubious expenditures during the Republic. Uh, enough that Cigar had, I think, multiple investigations into various things that they had done. Um, and in Afghanistan, because the TFBSO was originally set up to work in Iraq, but when they transferred their activities to Afghanistan, they focused mainly on mining uh, and on mineral exploration, and that includes oil and gas. Um, so uh, I, I never really knew any TFBSO people when I was here. I, I remember meeting a few of them at a party once who said that they were working on uh, something involving natural gas in uh, Jiaoshan, Shivergan. Uh, but I, I didn't really think very much of it. Um, when I did a little bit more reading, I found out that this particular project was was one of the most controversial that TFBSO had ever executed. Um, they started with an idea that actually seemed pretty good. Um, they noticed that in some other South Asian countries, like India and Pakistan, uh, a lot of motor vehicles run on compressed natural gas. I just came back from India a few weeks ago, uh, and you'll find that most of the tuk-tuks um, don't use uh, diesel or, or petrol. They use uh, what's called CNG, uh, and they have special filling stations that can supply uh, compressed gas rather than liquid fuel. Um, and again, because you know this is a, a, a country with a fair amount of air pollution, especially in, in Kabul, uh, it seemed like it might not be a bad idea to convince more drivers to use compressed natural gas instead of liquid fuel. It would be a way to cut down on air pollution, um, potentially save some money if gas turns out to be cheaper. And of course, Afghanistan has its own resources of gas. So it would be a way of reducing the country's dependence on imports. Uh, according to SIGAR, the Special Inspector General for uh, Afghanistan Reconstruction, uh, which is basically the independent agency that investigates uh, or investigated uh, corruption and U.S. spending here. Um, the idea seemed to make sense on the surface, but wasn't really very practical because it cost too much to get uh, an individual car converted to natural gas. So it was never really very realistic to think that Afghans were going to adopt this. Uh, but in spite of that, uh, TFBSO pushed ahead with an enormously expensive contract to build a, a, a kind of pilot uh, filling station in Shibergan. Uh, using gas extracted from the fields near there uh, to to try to convince uh, motorists in 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 that city um, to switch to CNG, uh, and they ended up building building what looks like a very ordinary filling station, um, which in Pakistan would cost less than three hundred thousand uh, dollars. 
Uh, but the total cost for that project was something like $43 million. Now, that's oh, been described as one, one of the worst... For, for one yes, filling yes, station. You, you can see the photograph of the filling station after it was completed in the BBC article that was written about it afterwards, after Seagar wrote a report about this particular project. Uh, the filling station cost more than 100 times what a similar filling station in Pakistan would have cost. And unlike Pakistan, where lots of drivers are already using compressed natural gas, there's basically nobody in Afghanistan who can use the filling station because their cars are not adapted for it. Um, so how could I put this? It's a little bit difficult to understand why all of that money was spent or where it went. And Sigar was actually not able to get any clear answers about where the money went. Uh, the Defense Department uh, explained to them that everybody who'd been involved with that project, including Jim Bullion, uh, had already resigned from the Defense Department at the time that the investigation began. So there was no way for them to provide any information. Um, it, it's not a very conclusive report because uh, uh, basically all the people who were involved uh, are refusing to talk about it. But it's certainly worth reading. So I thought it was a little bit odd that that uh, Jim Bullion, after... Uh, Having served uh, uh, in this particular position, you know, working on mining and, and minerals and, and trying to develop the Afghan natural resource economy, uh, that he would transition after he went back to the U.S. to becoming um, one of the top managers of girls boarding school. Um, that that was a little bit an odd career transition, and it, it, uh, it maybe set off a few alarm bells. Um, and then, of course, his his uh, his um, I don't want to say unwillingness because I did get them eventually, but his reluctance to provide the publicly available tax information about the school was also a little bit strange. And that led me to, to do a little bit of additional digging. Um, so what I found was that um, in 2020, uh, I believe it was October of 2020, so about 10 months before the Taliban took over Kabul, um, Shabana Basij Rasik, uh, and probably also Jim Bullion, because at that time he was the treasurer of the organization, uh, they did something a little bit strange. They they set up a, a, a separate organization, an Afghan NGO, uh, called Solar for Afghan Girls, which would receive uh, lump sum payments from the American charity and then use that money to pay rent and staff salaries and other expenses. Now, up until October of 2020, uh, that Afghan NGO did not exist. The American organization, as far as I can tell, was just paying the school's expenses directly. Uh, but beginning in towards the end of that year, uh, they created another organization through which all of the funds would be passed as a kind of intermediary. But there's nothing illegal about that, but it does mean that unless you're here in Kabul and you have access to the records of the economy ministry, it's very difficult to tell what's actually happening with the money. Um, I did go to the economy ministry. There is uh, a branch or a, a directorate of the economy ministry called the NGO directorate, which regulates non-governmental organizations. They were able to find solar for Afghan girls very quickly just by looking on their computer system. Uh, and uh, the, there's there's a fairly formalized system of registering NGOs where every organization, when it uh, when it notifies the economy ministry of its existence, it gets a, a, a something like a registration number uh, and a date of registration. Um, and the ministry has all this data at its fingertips. But what they found was that um, although they've been notified of the NGO's creation, they never received any annual reports about it. Not only that, but they were never notified that the NGO had opened an Afghan bank account at AIB, Afghanistan International Bank. Um, that's actually pretty serious because NGOs in this country are required to notify the economy ministry of bank accounts that they open. Um, so it was odd to find that uh, Basij Rasik and Bullion had set up a bank account here without notifying the government. And this, mind you, was before the Taliban took over. This was towards the end of the republic. Um, 
So they had moved, according to U.S. tax records, they had moved more than a million dollars from the American charity to the Afghan NGO just at the very end of 2020, the last 10 weeks of 2020, when the Afghan NGO actually existed on the books. Um, and it's hard to see how it would cost more than a million dollars to run a girls' boarding school for 10 weeks. That's that's closer to the amount that was spent uh, for an entire calendar year, uh, either in 2019 or in 2021. So the... The records are a little bit opaque. They don't show exactly what's happening, but they show that that um, un, undocumented fund transfers were made to Afghanistan um, that don't seem to be clearly connected to the school's expenditures. Because up until October, let's say for the first 10 months of 2020, uh, the American charity was paying the, the expenses uh, out of its own account. There was no Afghan intermediary organization. So uh, the question is, why were they moving so much money into this new Afghan NGO just at the very end of the year? Um, it's a lot of money, and it doesn't seem to match the uh, the school's underlying costs. Um, as I mentioned, I did eventually get the tax records for 2021. It wasn't easy. Um, but what I found at that point was that they uh, they created a third organization uh, based in Rwanda. Um, the Rwandan school, um, it's called, I think, Sola Limited, and it's also disclosed on the American tax records. Uh, it's not actually a nonprofit. It's set up as a for-profit corporation. And it's not directly controlled by the American charity. It's controlled by the Afghan NGO. So they may, they created this very complicated structure where it's, it's hard to tell exactly what's happening, except that the American entity is sending a lot of money to Afghanistan and to Rwanda. The people at the economy ministry thought it was odd that I was asking all these questions. At first, they thought that I was a donor. And they told me that I wouldn't be able to get any information unless I was a, I could show that I was a donor, because apparently that's how the NGO law works. I told them that that wouldn't work very well, because in fact, the only donor to this Afghan NGO is the American charity that set it up. So um, asking for, for donors to provide transparency is not going to work in that case. <clears throat> but they were very surprised to find that the bank account existed, uh, because as I said, that was unauthorized. So they ended up freezing it. I don't know whether they had any money in it at that time, because they uh, they said they weren't authorized to tell me. Uh, but they did mention that the there had been no record of the uh, the bank account having been opened. Um, so all this was done secretly, and it was done secretly before the Taliban took over, um, which, as I say, is a little bit hard to understand. This uh, that's that's probably about the first twenty tweets out of sixty. Yeah. So so this this investigation that you have done here is was supposed to be uh, investigative journalism in Afghanistan. You know, I actually made a video the other day in Pashto where I said that, uh, why is it that we have so many journalists in Afghanistan? Like thousands and thousands of people have graduated from uh, the you know uh, journalism schools in Afghanistan, but there isn't any investigative journalism being done. And here you are, someone who is not a journalist doing excellent investigative journalism. So uh, kudos to you. Uh, I, I'm very uh, interested in finding out more about the, these issues because uh, we are talking about three different uh, important matters here. On the one hand, we have uh, a ongoing situation, uh, the ban on education, secondary education and uh 
you know, uh, university education for women in Afghanistan, which is a serious issue that needs to be addressed. It is basically holding the whole society in uh, in a type of chokehold right now. On the other hand, we have the uh, endless dependency of Afghanistan on foreign aid, whether it's on uh, for education or other purposes. And the third one is this world of obscure uh, investment and donations and uh, businesses that have emerged, these very convoluted constructs that uh, uh, transfer money from one side of the world to the other side of the world as under, under the pretext of, you know, providing either aid or education to Afghanistan. And I think that the fact that you have uh, put so much effort in investigating this matter and uh, trying to uh, dig all the way, you know, through all these documents, it is an effort that uh, should be our common responsibility. Because on the one hand, you know, when people donate money, uh, whether it's uh, U.S. citizens or Europeans, when they donate money for a good cause in Afghanistan, obviously they make the assumption that that money is being spent well and that uh, that money is being used for good purposes. Uh, and on the other hand, uh, you know, people in Afghanistan who are being disadvantaged, people who are being uh, deprived of their right to education, obviously uh, their plight should not be used to create these constructs where there is no transparency. We don't even know where all that money went. And what you mentioned about those uh, filling stations that cost how much? $23 million? $43 million for something that should have cost a few hundred thousand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, just to jump to the very end of my... If I could jump to the end of my thread, I, I was... A little bit concerned in October of last year when I found out that uh, the entire management team of Sola had showed up in Kigali in Rwanda to meet with the Rwandan president and to announce that they were planning to expand the school and possibly build a, a new campus or something like that. Uh, Leslie Stahl, who did the 60 Minutes interview, uh, mentioned that very briefly. Um, and uh, my my hunch is that if they spend any money on on building a new campus in Rwanda, it's going to turn out to be a very expensive campus, and it's not going to educate any of the Afghan girls who are currently being deprived of education. So it's it's disappointing to see that this is happening. Um, I, I don't want to go into too much more detail because I I, uh, I hope I'm going to be tweeting about this issue again in the near future. Um, you you mentioned something very important, which is why is there so little investigative journalism here? I I can't really speak to why there's so little investigative journalism by Afghans. I mean, I think there are, there's some obvious reasons for that. But one thing that that puzzles me uh, and I find kind of frustrating is that there's very little investigative journalism uh, by people outside Afghanistan. And I've noticed a pattern which I think is is pretty consistent, uh, and that is that uh, when People managing NGOs here uh, who may not be using money in an appropriate way want to protect themselves from scrutiny. Um, they always rely on this assumption that a lot of Westerners make that it's impossible to go to Afghanistan or impossible to find out what's happening in Afghanistan. There's this perception that Afghanistan is like a black hole and that it's it's become invisible to the rest of the world. Um so I, I think Sola is not the the only NGO that is exploiting this this belief. I, I can think of at least one other women's organization that's doing the same thing. Um, 
In other words, keeping donations that were meant to be spent on Afghan women and spending them for a different purpose, because allegedly there's nothing that you can do in Afghanistan. You can't come here. You can't do anything here. You can't uh, learn anything here. None of those things are true. Uh, it is actually possible to do useful work uh, with uh, with NGO funding here, uh, if that's what you intend to do. Uh, if you intend to do something else with the money, it's very easy to say, oh, Afghanistan has disappeared. Uh, we just have to, to repurpose now and give up. And that's what some people are doing. And this also explains why there are, there is so much disinformation. Like, uh, if you preserve a image of Afghanistan as a black hole, uh, then there is no scrutiny. Nobody is going to ask question: Where is the money going? Are these uh, situations that are being uh, described are they actually true? Is this really the reality in Afghanistan? No, people want to preserve this uh, false image that nothing can be done. You cannot go there. Uh, it's a dead trap and uh, you cannot investigate anything. You cannot uh, help anyone. You cannot invest. Like the other day, something interesting happened. Okay, so someone asked me, uh, about employment in Afghanistan. And I said, you know, yes, in Afghanistan, you can still apply for jobs, you can get uh, hired, you can get jobs and everything. And there are all different types of jobs that you can get. Obviously, there is a lot of poverty, a lot of unemployment, people are suffering. But at the same time, there are people who are still getting on with their lives. But when I was describing this for someone here in the Netherlands, their jaw dropped like, huh? Like, is that really possible? And I think, you know, it, it is very frustrating because we are involved in a lot of activities in Afghanistan. We are trying to basically facilitate a slow and gradual return to normalcy in Afghanistan. And when we have all these people who are trying to portray Afghanistan as a black hole, as you described it, where nothing can be done, it prevents a lot of people from becoming active and trying to help people and trying to, you know, empower people because empowerment is essentially accepting the challenges of Afghanistan, the challenges that people have and finding solutions to make things uh, easier for them so that they can get on with their lives. You mentioned something very interesting. I didn't cut you off because I, you were uh, you were on a roll, <laughs> but you said that uh, uh, endlessly donating money and, and donating food to Afghanistan is a no, is not a long term solution. I personally, I think you know the worst thing that can happen to Afghanistan is donating food, because. Why is there such a shortage of food in Afghanistan? Obviously, there are climate change reasons, erosion of the soil and uh, lack of uh, water, uh, you know, lack of water, water shortage. But at the same time, when the Soviet Union in, uh, invaded Afghanistan, they destroyed the agriculture in rural areas. They forced rural Afghans to move to the cities and become dependent from food donations that were coming from Soviet Union. This was their way to subjugate the people of Afghanistan into becoming dependent on the state and Soviet Union so that they do not resist and fight against, uh, against them. 
ever since that was 40 years ago ever since Afghanistan has not recovered so the subsistence farming uh, that we had in Afghanistan in, in rural Afghanistan the way people used to produce food in order to survive in order to live that has been destroyed and for the last 40 years nobody made an effort to basically revive that because if Afghanistan produces enough food of its own for its internal you know uh, for its own consumption then you will have long-term stability in the country but as long as uh, food is being donated to Afghanistan food comes at very low price and uh, poor people get fed with the donations this does not mean that we will have a uh, economy that is self-sufficient and, and this is why you know I, I think you know one of the responsibilities we have whether you're Afghan or you're not Afghan but you are interested and invested in Afghanistan because you 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 care about the country and the people what what we should do as a, a community uh, of people who are all have the same interest the well-being and better in betterment of you know the situation of uh, people in Afghanistan we should find solutions that make the people of Afghanistan self-sufficient. And this is like something that I deeply care about. And as long as we have these organizations, uh, NGOs that basically thrive on the misery of people of Afghanistan and then collect millions and millions of dollars and those millions disappear, you know, it's it's very, uh, uh, you know, heartbreaking to see that the misery and pain of our people are being sort of exploited that's at least that's how i feel about it but uh jeff uh let's end this on a more uh positive note (laughs) uh aside from all the things that you do you are also a keen uh observer of uh ancient architecture and uh historic sites i saw recently that uh, i heard that you uh traveled to charikar uh let me get this on screen uh so uh you uh, you traveled to Charkar to visit the stupa uh, in Charkar yes. and uh, this one is called Topdara okay yes that's so right so for people who don't know Charkar is uh, the capital of Parwan province i think they've recently na- changed the name of that area they, co- they it's now called imam imam saib or uh, imam abu hanifa but uh, tell me uh, so you visited uh, di- different stupas uh, in afghanistan uh, um, wh- how did you become interested in these uh, ancient uh, uh, temples well um I think most people know Afghanistan has a very long Buddhist history. Um, people are familiar with the Buddhas of Bamiyan that were destroyed by the Taliban uh, a few, it was 2001, wasn't it? Just a few months before they were overthrown. But I think what people don't realize, and in fact, this includes a lot of Afghans, uh, is that there are actually uh, Buddhist uh, relics all over the country. Uh, they're just not very obvious. The Buddhas in Bamiyan were very big and the statues had not been destroyed previously. Uh, but the, you'll find Buddha niches, um, you know, similar to the ones of Bamiyan, but a little bit smaller uh, in many different locations. For example, you can see them on the cliffs of Lagman province as you drive from Kabul to Jalalabad. Um, there's a sort of uh, middle point of the road where you can you can see the the uh, niches have been carved out. Uh, and I remember uh, visiting a village in Paktia called um, Iskanderkhev. Uh, it's on the way from Gardez to Zaziayub. 
where there were some very obvious Buddha niches that were carved into the the uh, the cliffs behind the village. Uh, but the local people insisted that those were natural rock formations. I, I think there is a lot of resistance among some Afghans to to recognizing um, maybe the country's pre-Islamic history, especially you know physical manifestations of that history. But uh, this this stuff is there if you look for it. The, the stupas that I visited are enormous. Uh, the one in Topdara was recently um, designated by UNESCO as a as an important cultural site. Um, I would say the one in Shawaki, which is actually um, very close to downtown Kabul. I measured it on the map, and it's 13 kilometers from the Serena Hotel. Um, that was just recently restored with help from a Swiss NGO. Uh, I would say it's even more impressive than Topdara because it's got uh, a, a lot of land attached to it, which was used as, as housing for monks. And uh, um, basically, there was a functioning monastic community there, which I couldn't really see in Topdara. Topdara seemed to be a stupa all by itself without uh, without any housing around. Uh, but those are not the only ones. Uh, you have to remember that Bagram, before it, it shrank to the size of a village, uh, was the capital of a great empire. Um, and as far as I know, it's never been excavated. Not not very far from the airfield, you, you'll find the ruins of the old city if you dig a little bit, but nobody has done that. Uh, and I've always thought that um, if Afghanistan really wanted to uh, uh, develop uh, tourism, and, and if the rest of the world would like to help Afghanistan develop tourism, one of the most effective things they could do would be to invest in more archaeology here. Um, if you've been to the National Museum, you know what a tragedy it is that uh, that most of the uh, uh, the items there were looted or destroyed during the Civil War. Uh, but I, I think actually you could restock the museum pretty quickly if you did some systematic digging. You you you'll see if you go to the museum that most of what's there is from Ayhanum or maybe one or two other sites. I don't think Bagram has ever been systematically explored. I don't think there's been very much work done in Balkh, which is the capital of Bactria. Um, there's this there's this. Um, sort of idea that all of Afghanistan's ancient history has been looted and that nothing is left. I, I think that's probably wrong. I think if you if you made an effort and put a little bit of money in, uh, you would find that there's an enormous amount of stuff waiting to be discovered. Um, and a lot of it is above ground. You could just walk around in certain parts of the country and see buildings that have been there for a thousand years or two thousand years. Um, in most cases, uh, the local people either don't know what they are or don't care. Uh, they're not getting any kind of uh, protection or restoration. Um, there's been a little bit of work, as I mentioned, by the Swiss NGO, the Aleph Foundation, which restored Shawaki, and I think also Topdara. Um, but but there's an enormous amount of additional work that could be done. And again, if you want to provide people with jobs and with economic support in a way that doesn't directly benefit the Taliban, this is a really straightforward thing to do. So if anybody's listening, please put some money there. Yeah, let's have a look at uh, uh, Shewaki. Uh, let's see, you tweeted about it in 2022, 20th of November. Am I correct? Yes. yes. I think you are. You're looking at it now. Yes. So it's the stupa of Shewaki. And you know what's funny is that I am from Kabul. I'm not fr originally from an area, no, like not far from Shewaki. And I've never visited this place. I've never seen it. <laughs> Had you heard of it? Had you heard yes, of it before? Yes. yes I okay. knew that it existed, but I've never been there. And this is like what you said, you know, uh, in Afghanistan, we have many historical sites that have never been explored. 
they have never been uh, dug up. There has never been enough money and resources to investigate and research uh, all these different historic sites. And, you know, this is also one of the problems of uh, Afghanistan being a country that was sort of a buffer between uh, first the Tsarist Russia and then the Soviet Empire and then the British Empire to the south uh, east. And then later it became in uh, an isolated state and very poor country. And then the 44 years of war. Now that is some sort, there is some sort of stability, there is no war. This is a perfect opportunity for people who are really interested to basically uh, gather resources and go and, and dig uh, stuff up, investigate uh, the rich history of Afghanistan. And uh, so you, you visited these tupas. Are there any other specific places that you have in mind that you want to visit now that you are back in Afghanistan? Yes, there are. There's there's another stupa called Guldara, which I think is in uh, Charasiab district in Kabul. Um, I tried twice to go there just by taking a taxi, and I couldn't find it either time. Uh, not only that, but I couldn't even find any villagers who knew where it was or what it was. I kept saying Ziarat the one, which is what people call Shawaki. Um But I must have been in the slightly wrong location, because when I went back to Google Maps and I, I looked at the satellite photography, I realized that I had actually been kind of close to something that looks like an ancient structure. So, mm -hmm. Jeff, uh, th uh, I want to thank you for being our guest. Uh, it was very insightful, everything that you shared with us. Uh, and uh, if our audience, if they want to get in touch with you, what is the best way to get in touch with Jeff? Well, Twitter, definitely. It's Jeff Rigsby, too. I don't know who Jeff Rigsby one is, but that's uh, that's my handle. All so right. unlike some people, I don't block DMs. Okay, I will add your uh, Twitter handle in the description of this episode. Um, when I'm back in Afghanistan, I hope to see you there, and then maybe we can go and travel together. I hope so too. You got to come back here. Yes, definitely. When you get a chance. Yes, if I get the chance to get off uh, from my work, and then we will uh, travel, go to the countryside so thank you all for tuning in for another episode of the afghan eye podcast i'm your host sangar paikar if you would like to support the afghan eye please visit our patreon page afghan eye or uh, alternatively visit our paypal page until next time take care of yourself and each other assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi